the Gospel of Luke was not written by an eyewitness of the life of Jesus Christ at all. In fact, it was written by a Gentile doctor. We can call him Dr. Luke. In fact, Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, has the esteemed privilege of being the only Gentile author in the New Testament. He was a terrific man. It's thought that he was a physician from Troas that met Paul on his missionary journey, accompanied him on his second missionary journey, and perhaps even his third, I believe his third missionary journey all the way to Rome because of what Paul writes about him toward the end of Paul's own life. Though he was not an eyewitness, he is a, a style that is very exact. And in the first four verses, he talks about how he has examined other eyewitnesses. And his gospel is a compilation of the eyewitness examples, the interviews that he has conducted of those who were witnesses of the life of Jesus Christ. Being a doctor, he writes like a doctor. He uses more medical terms in his writings, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, than the writings of Hippocrates, the father of medicine. He's very exact in his description. He's very concerned when he sees a miracle to describe it from the point of view of a physician. Now, Paul the Apostle... I think had an affinity for Luke because they were companions. Beginning in Acts chapter 16, the author of the book of Acts, Luke, writes in the first person, whereas before that he writes in the third person. This is what Paul did in Barnabas in the church. Then he starts saying we from about the middle of chapter 16 to the end of the book, which means he was a companion with Paul in many of his journeys. And I think Paul and Luke hit it off. They tracked together. Luke was a brilliant intellect, as well as was Paul. Remember the Apostle Paul mentioned how we're chosen by God from the foundations of the earth, and he says, You see your calling, brethren, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, how that there are not many mighty, not many wise, not many noble after the flesh that are called. It doesn't say not any, it says not many doesn't mean that there are none. It just, for the most part, the commoners follow Jesus. But there were a few, and Luke would be an exception to that rule. He was a man of brilliant perspicuity, insight, intellect. And I think he and Paul could track on so many issues. And his exactness shows it. In fact, the Greek that Luke uses in his book is the most exact of any Greek in the entire New Testament, including the writings of Paul. Beautiful, classic, exact Greek. And it's one of the things that the scholars point out is that Luke wrote with such beauty and exactness when he wrote the Gospels. The theme of this book, most of you already know from our previous studies in the Gospels, Matthew and Mark, Luke has the emphasis of Jesus Christ being the perfect man. Now let's go back through our list of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them write from a different angle. The first three Gospels, known as the Synoptics, because of their similarity, they're very like each other. Matthew writes showing that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. He's the promised Messiah. And so there's many scriptural references. There's many Hebrew idioms. He belabors the point that Jesus is the fulfilled, promised Messiah to the nation of Israel. Mark has an emphasis all of his own. He tries to show that Jesus is the servant of Jehovah. That he is there to do the bidding of God. And so we have words like, and immediately, and, and, but, then, and, Mark shows a very rapid movement, showing that Jesus was the servant of his Father, quickly, immediately, completely doing his will while upon the earth. The Gospel of Luke emphasizes Jesus as the perfect man, the perfect God-man, but the emphasis is on his humanity. 
Because Luke is writing not for the Jews, not for the Romans, as was Mark. He's writing for the Greeks. And the Greeks developed in their thinking, especially during the Periclean age, the idea of the perfect man. The perfect looking man combined with the perfect intellectual. All in one, they had this ideal of the perfect man, and they wrote about him. Some of the myths sort of encapsulate the idea of perfect humanity. They strived, they strove for that. Writing to the Greeks, he shows that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And there's a lot of emphasis on the compassion, the touchability, the tenderness, the manhood of Jesus Christ. Then, of course, John is in a class all of his own. He writes of Jesus as God manifest in the flesh, the deity of Jesus Christ. And it's not called one of the synoptics. It's in a class all of its own. So keep in mind that he's writing with exactness to the Greeks. During the uh, 19th century, the late 1800s, in England and in Europe, a wave of scholastic skepticism and pessimism swept over Europe and England as sort of a um, rebuttal or a, a backlash to the Victorian era that preceded it. The Victorian era had as its handbook the Bible. And many people today will scoff all oh, these Victorians and their styles and their narrowness. And, you know, we, we try to show that we're liberated from the Victorian age. But the Victorian age had some many wonderful developments. Well, after the Victorian era, there was this skepticism that swept through England. Schools like Cambridge had these scholars who looked at the Bible and came up with their ideas of higher criticism taking their cues from Western Europe. One of the scholars named was Sir William Ramsey, who was a historian, an archaeologist. And being a historian, he felt that all history was tainted. You can't really take any one person's word for anything. It's filled with flaws. And he understood that Luke, of all of the writings of the New Testament, was probably the most accurate, but he decided he would take the Gospel of Luke, the historical account of a Gentile physician, and show all of the historic holes that were in this Gospel, showing that as a flawed history. The New Testament is a flawed book, a man-written book. He wanted to disprove Christianity and show that it was brainless. So he undertook an archaeological tour of the digs of Asia Minor, the places that Luke writes about in the book of Acts, the places where Paul went on his missionary journeys, places in the Middle East. And he began by examining the book of Luke and Acts in conjunction with these archaeological sites. At the end of his journeys, he decided that there was not one single historic or archaeological contradiction in the writings of Luke. And this brilliant agnostic became a Christian and wrote many books to defend the faith against the agnostic. Because Luke wrote with such clarity and such exactness that Sir William Ramsey became an apologist, a defender of the faith. Now, there are many things in the Gospel of Luke that are different from the other Gospels. It's filled with songs. The songs of Christmas. The Song of Elizabeth, the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, the Song of Zecharias, the Song of the Angels in chapter 2, Glory in Excelsis Deo. It is filled with parables and miracles that the other Gospels do not record. There are six miracles recorded in Luke that the other Gospels don't even mention. There are 28 parables that Luke mentions in this book, 18 of which are not mentioned in the other Gospels. 18 fresh new parables. Parables like the prodigal son, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and some of the most famous are included in the Gospel of Luke. So that's something we're going to cover and look for as we go through it. The account of Jesus speaking to the two on the road to Emmaus is only covered in Luke chapter 24. And 
There is a compassion in the writing of Luke, which reflects the compassion and love of Jesus Christ, but also the love and compassion of Luke as a doctor, in touch with human needs. He is one that writes with compassion for human suffering when he speaks about the diseases. The words that he chooses, the words that he uses, are filled with compassion. It has been said that a minister sees people at their best, a lawyer sees people at their worst, and a doctor sees people as they are. Well, Luke saw people in their condition as they really were, and he writes with beautiful compassion, reflecting the compassion of Jesus Christ. So we begin, inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which are most surely believed among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. There were in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now what Luke first starts to do is set up the New Testament before the birth of Christ by showing us the birth of John the Baptist. Now of all the gospel writers, Luke's account is the most natural sequel to the Old Testament. Because since the Old Testament, since the book of Malachi, though it's only a page to flip over from Malachi to Matthew, there were 400 silent years. God did not speak to man. God had no message from heaven. It was absolutely brazen, absolutely silent. There was a promised forerunner at the last part of Malachi. And then there was a gap of 400 silent years until God broke the silence by sending Gabriel to speak to Zacharias while he was offering incense in the temple. So it is a very natural sequel. There is God speaking, there is silence, and God breaks the silence through Gabriel, speaking of John the Baptist in fulfillment of Malachi. I would commend to you our study on Matthew where we talk about the 400 silent years and what happened during that time. A lot of changes happened. I could sum up a few of them. In the Old Testament, we left off where Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, Ezra had come back from the captivity. The people under their leadership were rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. It became a little lax, but then through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and these men of God and their prophecies, they started rebuilding the temple once again. And then the last prediction is that God would send a messenger in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the father's hearts back to the children, to recover the hearts of the nation of Israel back to God. A prediction of the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. The Old Testament closes at a time when Medo-Persia is clearly in charge. They're the big dogs in the world. They rule the world. And then the Old Testament closes. And all of a sudden you open the New Testament, you have names like Herod. And you have Rome that is in charge. And they're speaking a new language now, Aramaic rather than Hebrew, the language of the captivity. They have a different version of the Bible, the Greek version, the Septuagint. So a lot of changes have happened from the close of the Old Testament to the opening of the New Testament. Let me give you a quick thumbnail sketch. Over in Macedonia, Philip comes to power, Philip of Macedon. There's a rival happening between the Macedonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persians move hastily, killing Philip of Macedon. Philip's son is named Alexander. Alexander was not a warrior, he was a bookworm. He really didn't want to follow in the footsteps of his father. But eventually he does. To make a long story a little bit shorter, Alexander, in 10 years, conquers the world. 
bringing back the Greco-Macedonian Empire under his rule, avenging the Medo-Persian Empire, pushing them back, defeating them. Now the big dog is Alexander the Great. And the beautiful, prestigious Greek Empire rules the world until his death. He dies in Babylon, about 31 years of age, in a drunken stupor. As he's on his deathbed, they ask him, to whom shall go the kingdom? He said, give it to the strong. And so they sliced it up like a pie into four pieces, and Alexander's four generals took over. The two most notable generals, for our purpose, formed two kingdoms, the Ptolemaic kingdom, or Egypt down south, and the Seleucid Empire, Assyria up north. I'm thinking south and north of Israel. Israel sandwiched right in the middle. They're significant because the Ptolemaic kingdom and the Seleucid kingdom are always fighting one another. And the one who gets the brunt of it is the guy in the middle, Israel. The most notable persecutor was named Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. The Jews called him Antiochus Epimenes, the beast. But he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest in the flesh. No lack of self-esteem in this guy. He so persecutes the Jewish nation, killing literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands, brutally massacring the Jewish nation, until the time of an uprising of Hasmonean priests in a village of Modin, not far from Jerusalem, under the rulership of Mattathias. The general comes into the town of Modin, commands that the men burn, uh, make a sacrifice to the pagan god, Zeus. The priest of Modin decides to obey this pagan general instead of saying, no way, I'm going to obey God. And so when he decides to sacrifice to the false deity, Mattathias, the Hasmonean priest, kills the village chieftain and starts a revolt called the Maccabean Revolt, which continues, gains momentum, until his son Judas Maccabeus becomes the big dog of the Hasmonean Empire and succeeds in pushing back Antiochus and all of his forces out of Israel. The temple up to this point had been desecrated. A pig had been sacrificed. Prostitutes filled the temple. Scrolls had been burned. A pig had been offered on the altar of sacrifice. They called that the abomination of desolation. And then came the freeing of the temple, which is called now the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah. Hanukkah comes from the freeing of the temple under Judas Maccabeus. All of this happens during these 400 silent years. Now, they're not quiet years. They're just silent in terms of God speaking to men. It remains under Hasmonean rule, Jewish rule, until the Romans come in. Pompey is very big in 63 B.C., and he takes over the world, and now Rome is clearly in charge. The version of the Scripture called the Septuagint, or Greek translation of the Hebrew into the Greek language, was the language, basically, of the known world. And it was one of the most beautiful translations ever produced by a group of scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, around 285 B.C. That's sort of the setup for this. So Luke comes on the scene and he acknowledges, okay, people have written stories about Jesus before. Many have taken into account to do this, perhaps referring to Mark uh, or, or uh, Matthew. John hadn't written his gospel yet. But since Luke was not an eyewitness and he was a Gentile, He says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all these things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. So the first four verses show a beautiful description of the human, the, um, how do I want to put it? the human cooperation in the writing of the scripture. We know that the Bible is inspired by God. All Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, all Scripture is theanoustos, God-breathed, inspired by God, and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. 
But how did it happen? Did God dictate it? No. Second Peter gives us a little more insight. As Peter says, For we know that no word of prophecy is derived from man, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. As they were carried along, God breathed, so to speak, inspiration. Man put up his sails. God breathed and the ship moved to the destination God wanted the ship to go to. The people who were the human authors wrote with their own personality, their own mastery of their own language, from their own experience, their own research. But the end result was the destination that God and even the words that God wanted to be implanted into the minds and hearts of men. That's inspiration. It's the Word of God. And yet God graciously uses the authorship and the scholarship of man. Now, there's two words I want you to notice in uh, verse 2. They're great words. They're medical terms. At least the first one is. You'll love that. He says, eyewitnesses and ministers. The word eyewitnesses is atoptai, autoptai, which means one who sees something for himself. We get the word autopsy from the word eyewitness, a medical term to cut open a cadaver and look at it for yourself. And then the second word, ministers, is hupertai, which literally means the under rower in a ship, the guys who make the ship go. They row it. Used in a medical sense, it was used for the intern of a hospital or a medical clinic or a medical team. The under rower was the intern, the student. So what he's saying basically is, look, we're just interns of the great physician. We're ministers. And I have taken an orderly account. We've made an autopsy of the report of these eyewitnesses. And we're all interns of the great physician, Jesus Christ. And we've taken and belabored to research this completely and write an orderly account. And then he says, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very beginning. to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus. Now, we don't know much about Theophilus. We just know that he's most excellent. It's about all we know. We know what his name means, and we know how he's described with adjectives. He's also mentioned in Acts chapter 1, the former account which I made unto you, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up. Theophilus, it is thought, was the master, the boss, the owner of Luke. That's right. In those days, doctors were very different than they are today. They were owned. Can you imagine that? A doctor owned, sort of as a well-to-do slave. The very rich owned their own physicians. They had their own private physicians. Now, obviously, Theophilus was a great guy. He's given the term most excellent. Because of that, that's a term that the Greeks would use to describe even someone in Roman government. It could be that he was a Greek who had some Roman post in one of the Greek cities of the Roman Empire, perhaps Troas. Theophilus comes from two words, theos, God, phileo, to love, brotherly love. We get the word Philadelphia, philanthropy, and so forth from phileo. So it means... One who loves God or the friend of God. What a great name. Most excellent Theophilus. It could be that Luke and Theophilus are now brothers in Christ. They have heard of Christ. Luke's committed his heart, obviously, to Jesus. And it seems that through his testimony, so has Theophilus. And so he's writing an orderly account for Theophilus. Little did he know that it would get passed on to us. But God knew. Verse 5, there were in the days of Herod, and we'll talk about him next time, interesting, diabolical character, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elisheva. It's her Hebrew name. We transliterate that, Elizabeth. 
They were both righteous before God, walking in all of the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Zacharias, his name means God remembers. God remembers. Elizabeth, Eli Sheva, Eli is Hebrew for God or his, literally. His meaning God's. Sheva, like Be'er Sheva, the city of the oath, the well of the oath. So it means his oath. When you put their names together, Zacharias and Elisheva, Elizabeth, it means God remembers his oath. Which is very, very insightful because through them, God remembered his oath in bringing as their own son, the forerunner of the Messiah. Because God made an oath to Abraham. God made an oath to David. And we're going to see the unfolding of that fulfillment beginning here in John the Baptist, a relative of Jesus Christ. Now it says he's a priest of the division of Abijah. Every single descendant of Aaron was automatically in the priesthood unless he, because of some physical difficulty, could not work in the tabernacle or the temple. Which presents a problem because it means you've got one temple in Jerusalem and a few acres of land. You've got a whole nation, but the entire tribe are priests. Every descendant of Aaron, of the Levites, is a priest. Which meant at this time there were probably 20,000 priests. They couldn't all work together. So in First Chronicles, David divides up the priesthood in 24 courses. Shifts, so that every priest would work two shifts per year. You know, that's a great job. From Sabbath to Sabbath, one week, that priest would work. And then, several months later, six months later, from another Sabbath to another Sabbath, that priest would work. He'd have two shifts per year. And it was only during the three main festivals that all of the priests got together and served simultaneously, all 20,000 of them in the temple. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. The way they would go about it is they would report for duty during their course and they would draw lots. So as not to show favoritism, they would draw lots as to who would do what function in the temple. He was of the course, it says, the division of Abijah, his wife was one of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now, it was incumbent upon the priests to marry a pure Jewess. Not one of mixed background, but one who is pure in Judaism. If that priest was to marry someone also from the descendant, lineage of Aaron. It was even more meritorious. They looked upon it with great favor. And she was. She was a descendant of Aaron as well. And the great thing about them, it is described, they were both righteous before God, walking in all of the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, blameless. So just a, a, a great Jewish couple who loved God and, and did what they could in their course, in their turn, to serve God. Now, they had a problem. The problem is they were childless. It's not as much as a problem today as it was back then. In the times of Judaism that was in charge of Israel, it was a disgrace for a husband and wife to not be able to conceive. It was a shame. They saw children as a blessing from God. As the psalmist said, children are a heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. The more the better. Some of them even saw that if a couple had no children, it was the indication that God had not blessed their life. Very much like modern false doctrine faith theology that says if you don't walk in perfect health or have a lot of money, that God isn't blessing your life. It was the same mixed-up kind of a thinking. And so Luke is careful to bring out. This couple was righteous. They were obedient. They were godly. It wasn't because of any sin in their life that they lacked children. But there was even a Jewish rabbi, believe it or not, who said, 
There are seven people who will not see the kingdom of heaven. Number one, a Jew who has no wife. Number two, a Jewish couple that has no children. Now that was not God's word. That was simply the tradition of some of the rabbis. So it had been a painful time. Though they served God, they lived a righteous life. They had no children. Verse 7, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And something else is a problem. They were both well advanced in years. I, I think the King James really says it the best. They were both well stricken in years. Very descriptive phrase. They were old. Now I know that's a relative term. Um, I was snowboarding yesterday and uh, had a great time. After the day was over, I was inside the ski lodge buying a candy bar. Snickers, they didn't have a Mars bar. <laughs> I got up to the line and the kid was very gregarious who was selling the products. He just talking, you know, flapping really, just saying anything. And, you know, he looked at me and then he looked down and he saw that I had snowboard boots on. He goes, are you a snowboarder? I said, yeah. And then he, he looked at me and goes, aren't you too old to be a snowboarder? So I smacked him as hard as I could. I said, well, I guess it's all relative age, isn't it? What, what's the cutoff date when you're no longer allowed to do this? I'm curious. And he, he got serious. He goes, I suppose about 28. Well, you're right, I'm old. Over the hill. But they, these guys were well stricken in years. I'm not well stricken yet. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, According to the customs of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. He must have been so excited because with 20,000 priests, 24 courses, it's very conceivable that a man would never get the chance to go into the holy place and burn incense. Now picture in your mind what this looks like and, and what his job was. The court of the Gentiles was, of course, several acres of flat rock area with colonnades on the sides forming a huge court. Then in the middle of that courtyard was another wall that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jewish women. There was a sign on that wall that said, Death to any Gentile passed this wall. There was a wall of division that separated Jew from Gentile. Then there was the court of women. There was the court of the Jewish men. And then there was the temple structure itself. Brilliant to behold, Josephus said that if you were 30 miles away from the temple on a sunny day, you could see the reflection of the top of the holy place, the entrance. As you would walk into the holy place, you were in a room, and as you would walk in to the right-hand side of you, your right hand is over here, to your right-hand side would be the table of showbread, 12 loaves of baked bread changed weekly by the priest. To your left would be a large menorah, Ours isn't out here. Seven-branch golden lampstand. The priests had to keep those burning continually. Right in front of you, if you were Zacharias, you'd see a small golden altar, a few feet tall, upon which incense was offered. Now remember, let's put it all together, our study of Leviticus, Exodus, and this section. Twice a day in Israel, sacrifices were made for the entire nation. A one-year-old male lamb was slaughtered and consumed as a burnt offering upon the altar of sacrifice in the outer court during Jesus' time. A burnt offering, a meal offering that consisted of flour and oil, and a libation, a drink offering of wine upon the altar every morning and every evening. Before the sacrifice, a priest would go in if he picked the right lot a little golden lot, 
walking into the holy place, he would go up to that altar and he would put incense on it. And it was representative of the prayers of the children of Israel. So you have a sacrifice, a sweet-smelling savor to God, wrapped in the beautiful smell of incense going up to God, signifying that God is receiving the sacrifice and the prayers of his people. So Zacharias must have been jazzed when he got the lot. I get to burn incense. Of course, it was all a setup. He had a very important meeting with an angel while he was having his uh, ministry inside the holy place. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. This precedes the sacrifice. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So there's that altar right in front of the veil that separates the holy place from the Holy of Holies, wherein is the Ark of the Covenant. So there he is, he's getting his incense ready. And, oh, this is awesome. Look, I've never, I've never gotten into this place before. This is great. Taking in all the sights, getting the incense ready. All of a sudden, to his, the right-hand side of the altar, there's an angel standing there. Let's see what happens. When Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. What would your reaction be if you saw an angel? Every time I read about an angel appearing in the Bible, they always have to say this interesting saying. They have to say, fear not. Because everyone who sees an angel is afraid. And I can understand that. Now, I've heard people say, yeah, I was on the highway the other day and an angel appeared to me. My first question, were you scared? Oh, no. Really? Everyone that I know sees an angel is pretty terrified. I mean, you don't expect to see an angel. Going to McDonald's and what if an angel appeared saying, can I take your order, please? <laughs> yes, I'll have angel food cake. You know, you want to be safe. Fear fell upon him, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John, which means the favor or the grace of Yahweh. Don't be afraid. Your wife's pregnant. Your prayer is heard. Now, it says he's well stricken in years. This is your prayer is heard. This guy must have been praying a long time. There are times when God does not answer your prayers in the time you'd like him to. God, how come you're not going to listen to me? Maybe it's not time. But imagine what Zechariah is thinking. Your prayer is hurt. My prayer is hurt. I mean, it's about time. I've been praying 40 or 50 years. Your prayer is heard. Maybe he was there that day thinking, oh, my life is so wonderful. I get this great job. The lot has fell upon me to burn incense. Oh, but I don't have a son to pass this on to. Hey, your prayer is heard. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. I love that. He'll be great in the sight of the Lord. That's where greatness counts. Who cares if you're great in the sight of the world? Who cares if you have the esteem and prestige and plaudence of men? It's better to be great in the sight of God. Now here's a guy who is going to, it seems, take the vow of a Nazarite. Not being able to drink strong wine. Or as it, it says here, uh, shall drink neither wine, that is, the product of grapes, nor strong drink, the product of grains, both fermented drinks. In verse 16, he will turn many to the children. Of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He's going to be much like Elijah. He's going to turn Israel back to a relationship with God. He's going to confront Israel like Elijah did with their sin. Turn with me back to uh, Malachi. 
Look at the last few verses of that book before the 400 silent years came into play. Verse 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike or smite the earth with a curse. Now back to what the angel says. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now later on, Jesus will tell his disciples, if you can receive it, John the Baptist is Elijah, who is to come. And then they were really confused. They said, wait a minute, so Elijah, is he still going to come? And Jesus said, oh yes, Elijah will still come. And we'll get to that when we get to it. Let's not confuse ourselves before we have the opportunity. <laughs> and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? I, I love this guy. What do you mean, how shall you know this? When was the last time an angel appeared to you, Zacharias? I mean, isn't this good enough? Isn't this sign enough? How shall I, isn't it amazing how unbelief robs us of the joy of the promise of God? Prove it. My wife's old, man. I'm well stricken in years. I'm an old man. My wife is well advanced in years. And the angel Gabriel, and the angel said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. Wow. Gabriel, of all of the angels. We read of Gabriel in Daniel chapter 8 as he speaks about the kingdoms that will come and interprets them to Daniel. We also read about him in Daniel chapter 9 after a period of Daniel praying for many days, weeks. The angel Gabriel comes and gives to Daniel a plan of the future of Israel and the coming of the Messiah. He says, Daniel, chapter 9, verse 25. Um, know therefore and understand from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, shall be 62 weeks and 7 weeks. And, and we've gone through it already in Daniel. But the beautiful prediction of the Messiah. Here he is again. After the 400 silent years, the silence is broken. He speaks to Zechariah. Hey, man, I'm Gabriel. Gabriel, you know, I can't wait to meet him. An incredible personage in the Bible. I was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until these things take place. You know, that's frustrating. It's been 400 years since God has decided to speak. And he speaks to a guy who won't be able to tell anybody else about it. God's first message in 400 years and the guy's... That's frustration. You will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias. You know, they want the sacrifice now. He's gone and burned the incense. They waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. Oh, you betcha. For he beckoned to them and remained speechless. And so it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, he departed to his own house. You know, he comes out and the people, oh, how come you're in there too long? And he can only make gestures. And presumably he did not know any kind of sign language because he had always been able to speak. And so he's making gestures. He remained speechless and he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. 
So Zacharias goes back home. He can't speak until John is born and on the eighth day is circumcised. Which means for the next several months, he's home and he gets to listen to his wife. He'd probably been doing all the talking all these years. (laughs) Now he has to sit and just listen and soak in what the angel told him, what God was trying to get through to him, and perhaps God was speaking through his wife. It would be interesting to interview him after this time. He said, God has taken away my reproach among men. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. In Judaism, there were three stages of marriage. They did not have dating. That is, a young teenager didn't see another young teenage uh, a guy, see a young teenage gal and say, hey, let's you know, go out to my friend's bar mitzvah this week and let's have a date. They didn't do that. Marriages were prearranged. The first was a section of engagement, very unlike our engagement. Marriages were prearranged by the parents. Engagement could take place when the child was two, three, four, five years of age without them knowing it. Now, that had its problems. And when you hear that, you think, man, I'm glad we live in modern times. I'd hate to have a prearranged marriage. I want to be able to choose myself. And I can understand, hey, listen, I don't know how well I would fare having my own parents choose my wife for me. We want the freedom of choice. And yet, are we really better off with one at least out of every two marriages on our own choosing, breaking up? We're not doing much better. In fact, their rate is a lot better than our rate. But anyway, you could conceivably have a young son and meet somebody else who has a young daughter and say, hey, look, they're about the same age. We could have an arrangement. Let's get them engaged. And so you pay the dowry, they're engaged. Up until the time of the first year before the wedding itself, the wedding ceremony, that last year was called the year of betrothal. It was a binding contract that you enter into. It is a time where the couple gets to know each other. It is more like our formal engagement. A ring is given in our engagement and The couple really gets to know each other and make plans. During that year, before the wedding, is the year of betrothal. You could not break up that relationship without a formal writ of divorcement. So it was conceivable to be a divorced virgin or to fulfill a phrase that you may have read in the Old Testament law. A virgin who is a widow. You've read that and you think, what is that? How could a virgin be a widow? Because during the year of betrothal, if the guy dies, she is a virgin. She hasn't had relationships with any guy. But because it's a year of betrothal, she is formally, technically widowed. And then, of course, there was the wedding ceremony. It is thought that Mary is about 15 to 16 years old during this time. Some even put the age down to about 13, which was the average age, right around 15, that these women in the New Testament would get married. Now, she was betrothed, it was that final year, to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Not above women, among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, 
and shall call his name Yeshua. Jesus is the transliteration of the Hebrew Yeshua, which is the Hebrew, it's, it's Joshua. Jehovah is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. This is now her sixth month for her who was called barren, for with God nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, and here's the beautiful submission of Mary, Behold the handmaid, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You can imagine how this would look. People today have a problem with the virgin birth. Imagine back then. Now think of Joseph. Young man. Must have been a man of faith. What was it like when she went to Joseph and said, Honey, I'm pregnant. Now we'd read later on that he thought of putting her away privately with a bill of divorcement, but he didn't do it. Because the angel comes to him and says, let me tell you what's going on. Let me fill you in on what you've missed out on. Boy, I have missed out on. I'd like to know what's happened. <laughs> but now imagine what it was like for Joseph as he would go around Nazareth, betrothed to this woman who's pregnant, to say, hey, listen, she's a virgin, as she's showing. I never laid a hand on her. She's never been with a man. She's pure. Yeah, right, Joseph. Right, buddy. We got you. He must have been a man of faith and a man of God to bear the brunt of that, as well as Mary, for those months. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah. The place where she goes, the birth of John the Baptist, is a place outside of Jerusalem. Today it's really inside the formal city of Jerusalem. It's called Ein Kerem, over by Hadassah Hospital. And if you ever go with us and we drive through that neighborhood, we'll show you the area where it is thought that John the Baptist was born. And entered the house of Zacharias. <laughs> he couldn't talk. So, greeted Elizabeth. <laughs> he could wave. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now why did Mary with haste go? Perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps to avoid the talk, the scandal that Joseph would have to go through in the next several months. Of course, in the first few months, the woman doesn't show. There's no ultrasound in that day, and there's nothing definitive, and you're not showing. It's okay, but later on. And it seems that it is later on that she comes back. But at least it gives him some time to get the story down and for the angel to speak to him. And so she was filled with the Holy Spirit. She spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? This is called the Benedictus because it's the first Latin word in the phrase, uh, blessed. But this is a prophesy, prophecy. She was filled with the Spirit. She spoke with a loud voice, not filled with the Spirit in the sense of Pentecost and thereafter. But she speaks forth the Word of God. And it is a, quite a prophecy because Mary, since she just had the annunciation that she is pregnant, She's not showing it off for the first several months. You don't, many times women don't even know they're pregnant until the baby begins to show if they haven't had a test. So here is the prediction, the prophecy, immediately because she came with haste immediately after the Annunciation. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Now, 
Verse 42, I think we ought to look at. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. I think that Protestants have given Mary a bad shake. Even talking her down. Mary is the most blessed among women to have ever lived. Highly favored, highly honored. No other woman in, woman in history has had that favor quite like Mary has. To be the mother of Jesus Christ in his incarnation. Complete virgin. Luke had no problem with the virgin birth, though he was a physician. What an honor that was, conceived by the Holy Spirit. I can't wait to meet Mary. I have a high regard and respect for Mary. I get upset when people put her down. But that doesn't mean she's to be prayed to or worshipped. I think Mary must be embarrassed at the way people throughout history have treated her as someone to give reverence to, someone to build statues to and pray in front of, someone to say many, many prayers after. She must be totally embarrassed because she intimates that she is a sinner in the Magnificat in verses to follow. She says she needs a Savior. Only sinners need a Savior. So being blessed and favored among women is one thing, but to take the step and start regarding her as some do, the co-redemptress of the human race. There is a church in Rome that has a cross, and on one side is Jesus dying for the sins of the world, and the other side is Mary on the same cross. That is tragic misinterpretation and misapplication. And again, I think Mary's embarrassed. But she is highly favored, and we ought not to put her down. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Now we get to the Magnificat. The Magnificat, it is called, verses 46 through 55. It is called the Magnificat because, again, it's the first word of the first phrase of that prayer in Latin. And so traditionally it's been called that throughout history. Um, magnificent anima mea dominum. My soul does magnify the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. I think you get a tremendous insight into the kind of a woman, a kind of a girl, 15 or 16 at this point, that Mary was. I think any time you hear somebody's prayer, you get insight into their life. That's why I always recommend for a young couple when they date to pray with each other. If you have a hard time praying with each other before marriage, you're not going to do it afterwards until you really get into a tight jam. And you go, I've got to pray. Hear that person pray. Listen to that relationship with God reflected in their prayer life. I imagine that Joseph and Mary shared many beautiful times of prayer together. When I first met my wife, she had been a Christian for about two weeks. I dated her, and the first date I took her to was church. Second date I took her to a seafood restaurant, Newport Beach. And uh, after all of our dates, I said, now let's pray. The first time I took her out, I prayed. I led in the prayer. And then I said, oh, and I nudged her, said, go ahead, it's your turn. And she stood there, sat there for a while, and she looked at me, and she goes, no, I can't. I've never done this. And I thought, you know, I don't want to be pushed. I don't want to embarrass her. I can understand that. We dated for a while. Broke up for a couple of years. She went off to do some mission work. A couple of years later, we 
met in a restaurant right before Christmas, had dinner. We were just friends. It wasn't any kind of a dating relationship at all. Took her back to her father's home. And as we were leaving, she said, let's pray. I said, great. She started to pray. And I started falling in love with her all over again. I thought, man, where'd she learn to communicate with God like this? It reflected such a deep and rich relationship with God. I just thought, wow. I'd like a woman to pray for me like this all the time. So it was after that prayer that we started writing, and I started writing feverishly as I was in California and she was in Hawaii, and that just sort of sparked my interest. Mary, you know, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Mary, 15 times in this short little Magnificat, quotes the Old Testament. Psalm 71, Psalm 111, Psalm 138 or 136, I believe, Exodus 34 is in it. Fifteen separate phrases from fifteen separate Old Testament sightings. Pretty good for a 15-year-old. And it's spontaneous. She didn't pull out a little card and start reading. Tremendous insight into the kind of relationship she had with God, her relationship to God, and her relationship to the Word of God. And insight, no doubt, into how Jesus was raised. You know, with a mom like that, you can't lose. Jewish children from a young age are taught the Scriptures. By 15, she has such a grasp of the promises that God gave to Abraham and the promise of the Messiah Savior. It is an absolutely amazing prayer to study on your own. Beautiful. Jesus' mother, praying. A couple things before we close and end our study tonight. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Soterion. One fitted to save. Who needs a Savior? The only one I know who needs a Savior are sinners. God, my Savior. Mary did not believe that she was immaculately conceived, that she would be assumed into heaven, as some teach or that she was a cut above everybody else, she saw herself as a sinner in need of redemption, though the most highly favored among all women. And it's personalized. shows her relationship to God, my Savior, not God, their Savior. What's your relationship to God like? You can tell what it's like as you listen to people describe God. Some talk about Jesus, my Lord. It's a good sign. Others talk about God in more generic, distant terms. You know, the good Lord has his plan and purpose. He is good, but he's more than just the good Lord. He's my Lord. Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? Do you have a personalized relationship with him? Are you distant? Do you just send little vocal letters maybe once a week on Sunday morning at church? Or do you have a personal ongoing relationship? It's very obvious from this that she did. Verse 51, and we'll go down to verse 55 and close. We're past our time. Wish we had a couple more hours, but we don't. But he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. We'll pick up next time on the birth of John the Baptist, and we'll get into the birth of Jesus Christ in chapter 2. So finish chapter 1, read chapter 2. There are parts of Luke we want to go over quickly because we've gone over them twice in the other synoptics, Matthew and Mark, but then there's other places that we want to slow down on, on those parts of Luke that none of the other gospel writers include, especially those parables and some of the miracles. Father, we are grateful that you have allowed us as a body of Christ to week by week come and hear the Word of God and get an overview of the Bible and read these wonderful stories that never get old, this orderly account of Dr. Luke written to Theophilus, but you had a broader audience in mind, 
and we were included in that audience. We thank you, Father, for this detailed treatise of the life of Jesus Christ. It is our prayer, Lord, that as we build week by week upon this foundation, reading through this book, that we would see Jesus in a fresh and a more personal way. I pray, Father, for anyone who's come tonight who has any kind of relationship short of God, my Savior. And I pray, Father, that before the night is over, those people who are in spiritual limbo, without the peace of God ruling in their life, would come in humility and repentance and come to know the living and true God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.